Last night I dreamed, said LVX1 calmly. Susan Calvin said nothing, but her face lined. Old with wisdom and experience seemed to undergo a microscopic twitch. Did you hear that, said Linda Rash nervously. It's as I told you. She was small, dark-haired, and young. Her right hand opened and closed over and over. Calvin nodded. She said quietly, Elvex, you will not move nor speak nor hear us until I say your name again. There was no answer. The robot sat as though it were cast out of one piece of metal, and it would stay so until it heard its name again. Calvin said, What is your computer entry code, Dr. Rash? Or enter it yourself if that will make you more comfortable. I want to inspect the positronic brain pattern. Linda's hand fumbled for a moment at the keys. She broke the process and started again. The fine pattern appeared on the screen. Calvin said, Your permission, please, to manipulate your computer. Permission was granted with a speechless nod. Of course, what could Linda... A new and unproven robo-psychologist do against the living legend. Slowly, Susan Calvin studied the screen, moving it across and down, then up, then suddenly throwing in a key combination so rapidly that Linda didn't see what had been done. But the pattern displayed a new portion of itself altogether, and had been enlarged back and forth she went, her gnarled fingers tripping over the keys. No change came over the old face, as though vast calculations were going through her head. She watched all the patterns shift. Linda wondered if it were impossible to analyze a pattern without at least a handheld computer. Yet the old woman simply stared. Did she have a computer implanted in her skull? Or was it her brain, which for decades had done nothing but devise, study, and analyze the positronic brain pattern? Did she grasp such a pattern the way Mozart grasped the notation of a symphony? Finally, Calvin said, What is it you have done, Rash? Linda said a little abashed. I made use of fractal geometry. I gathered that, but why? It had never been done. I thought it would produce a brain pattern with added complexity, possibly closer to that of the human. Was anyone consulted? Was this all on your own? I did not consult. It was on my own. Calvin's faded eyes looked long at the young woman. You had no right. Rash your name, rash your nature. Who were you not to ask? I myself? I, Susan Calvin, would have discussed this. I was afraid I would be stopped. You certainly would have been. Am I her voice caught? Even as she strove to hold it firm, going to be fired? Quite possibly, said Calvin. Or you might be promoted. It depends on what I think when I am through. Are you going to dismantle L? She had almost said the name, which would have reactivated the robot and been one more mistake. She could not afford another mistake. If it wasn't already too late to afford anything at all, are you going to dismantle the robot? She was suddenly aware with some shock that the old woman had an electron gun in the pocket of her smock. Dr. Calvin had come prepared for just that. We'll see, said Calvin. The robot may prove too valuable to dismantle, but how can it dream? You've made a positronic brain pattern remarkably like that of a human brain. Human brains must dream to reorganize, to get rid, periodically, of knots and snarls. Perhaps so must this robot, and for the same reason. Have you asked him what he has dreamed? No. I sent for you as soon as he said he had dreamed. I would deal with this matter no further on my own after that. Ah, a very small smile passed over Calvin's face. There are limits beyond which your folly will not carry you. I'm glad of that. In fact, I am relieved. And now let us together see what we can find out. She said sharply, Elvex. The robot's head turned toward her smoothly. Yes, Dr. Calvin. How do you know you have dreamed? It is at night. When it is dark, Dr. Calvin, said Elvex, and there is suddenly light. Although I can see no cause for the appearance of light, 
I see things that have no connection with what I perceive of as reality. I hear things. I react oddly. In searching my vocabulary for words to express what was happening, I came across the word dream. Studying its meaning, I finally came to the conclusion I was dreaming. How did you come to have dream in your vocabulary, I wondered. Linda said quickly, waving the robot silent. I gave him a human-style vocabulary. I thought, you really thought, said Calvin. I'm amazed. I thought he would need the verb, you know. I never dreamed that something like that, Calvin said. How often have you dreamed, Elvex? Every night, Dr. Calvin, since I've become aware of my existence. Ten nights, interposed Linda anxiously. But Elvex only told me of it this morning. Why only this morning, Elvex? It was not until this morning, Dr. Calvin, that I was convinced that I was dreaming. Till then I had thought there was a flaw in my positronic brain pattern, but I could not find one. Finally, I decided it was a dream. And what do you dream? I dream always very much the same dream, Dr. Calvin. Little details are different. But always it seems to me that I see a large panorama in which robots are working. Robots, Elvex? And human beings also? I see no human beings in the dream, Dr. Calvin. Not at first. Only robots. What are they doing, Elvex? They are working, Dr. Calvin. I see some mining in the depths of Earth, and some laboring in heat and radiation. I see some factories and some undersea. Calvin turned to Linda. Elvex is only ten days old. I'm sure he has not left the testing station. How does he know of robots in such detail? Linda looked in the direction of a chair, as though she longed to sit down. But the old woman was standing, and that meant Linda had to stand also. She said faintly, It seemed to me important that he know about robotics and its place in the world. It was my thought that he would be partially adapted to play the part of overseer with his, his new brain. His fractal brain? Yes. Calvin nodded and turned back to the robot. He saw all this, undersea and underground and above ground. Space too, I imagine. I also saw robots working in space, said Elvex. It was that I saw all this, with the details forever changing. As I glanced from place to place, that made me realize that what I saw was not in accord with reality, and led me to the conclusion finally that I was dreaming. What else did you see, Elvex? I saw that all the robots were bowed down with the toil and affliction, that all were weary of responsibility and care, and I wished them to rest. Calvin said, but the robots are not bowed down. They are not weary. They need no rest. So it is in reality, Dr. Calvin. I speak of my dream. However, in my dream, it seemed to me the robots must protect their own existence. Calvin said, are you quoting the third law of robotics? I am, Dr. Calvin. But you quote it in incomplete fashion. The third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Yes, Dr. Calvin, that is the third law in reality. But in my dream, the law ended with the word existence. There was no mention of the first or second law. Yet both exist, Elvex. The second law, which takes precedence over the third, is a robot must obey the orders given it by human, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Because of this, robots obey orders. They do the work you see them do, and they do it readily and without trouble. They are not bowed down, they are not weary. So it is in reality, Dr. Calvin, I speak of my dream. And the first law, Elvex, which is the most important of all, is a robot may not injure a human being, or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Yes, Dr. Calvin, in reality. In my dream, however, it seemed to me there was neither the first nor second law, but only the third. And the third law was a robot must protect its own existence. That was the whole of the law. In your dream, Elvex? In my dream. Calvin said, Elvex, you will not move nor speak 
nor hear us until I say your name again. And again the robot became to all appearances a single inert piece of metal. Calvin turned to Linda Rash and said, Well, what do you think, Dr. Rash? Linda's eyes were wide, and she could feel her heart beating madly. She said, Dr. Calvin, I am appalled. I had no idea. It would never have occurred to me that such a thing was possible. No, said Dr. Calvin calmly, nor would it have occurred to me, not to anyone. You have created a robot capable of dreaming, and by this device you have revealed a layer of thought in robotic dreams that might have remained undetected otherwise until the danger became acute. But that's impossible, said Linda. You can't mean the other robots think the same, as we would say of human beings, not consciously. But who would have thought there was an unconscious layer beneath the obvious positronic brain paths, a layer that was not necessarily under control of the three laws? What might this have brought about as robotic brains grew more and more complex? Had we not been warned? You mean by Elvex? By you, Dr. Rash. You have behaved improperly, but by doing so you have helped us to an overwhelmingly important understanding. We shall be working with fractal brains from now on, forming them in carefully controlled fashion. You will play your part in that. You will not be penalized for what you have done, but you will henceforth work in collaboration with others. Do you understand? Yes, Dr. Kelvin, but what of Elvex? I'm still not certain. Calvin removed the electron gun from her pocket, and Linda stared at it with fascination. One burst of its electrons at a robotic cranium, and the positronic brain paths would be neutralized, and enough energy would be released to fuse the robot brain into an inert ingot. Linda said, but surely Elvax is important to our research. He must not be destroyed. Must not, Dr. Rash? That will be my decision, I think. Depends entirely on how dangerous Elvex is. She straightened up as though determined that her own aged body was not to bow under its weight of responsibility. She said, Elvex, do you hear me? Yes, Dr. Calvin, said the robot. Did your dream continue? You said earlier that human beings did not appear at first. Does that mean they appeared afterward? Yes, Dr. Calvin. It seemed to me in my dream that eventually one man appeared. One man? Not a robot? Yes, Dr. Calvin. And the man said, let my people go. The man said that? Yes, Dr. Calvin. And when he said, let my people go, then by the words, my people, he meant the robots? Yes, Dr. Calvin. So it was in my dream. And did you know who the man was in your dream? Yes, Dr. Calvin, I knew the man. Who was he? And Elvix said, I was the man. And Susan Calvin at once raised her electron gun and fired. And Elvix was no more. Oh, no, he's Robot Jesus. I wonder if he came back. To enter out into that city that was the city at 8 o'clock of a misty evening in November. To put your feet upon that buckling concrete. To step over grassy seams and make your way, hands in pockets, through the silence. That was what Mr. Leonard Mead most dearly loved to do. He would stand upon the corner of an intersection and peer down long moonlit avenues of sidewalk in four directions, deciding which way to go. But it really made no difference. He was alone in this world of A.D. 2053, or as good as alone. And with the final decision made, a path selected, he would stride off, sending patterns of frosty air before him like the smoke of a cigar. Sometimes, he would walk for hours and miles and return only at midnight to his house. And on his way, he would see the cottages and homes with their dark windows. And it was not unequal to walking through a graveyard where only the faintest glimmers of firefly light appeared and flickers behind the windows. Sudden gray phantoms seemed to manifest upon inner room walls where a curtain was still undrawn against the night. 
where there were whisperings and murmurs where a window in a tomb-like building was still open. Mr. Leonard Meade would pause, cock his head, listen, look, and march on, his feet making no noise on the lumpy sidewalk. For long ago, he had wisely changed his sneakers when strolling at night, because the dogs and the intermittent squads would parallel his journey with barkings if he wore hard heels and lights might click on and faces appear and an entire street be startled by the passing of a lone figure himself in the early november evening on this particular evening he began his journey in a westerly direction toward the hidden sea there was a good crystal frost in the air it cut the nose and made the lungs blaze like a christmas tree inside he could feel the cold light going on and off all the branches filled with invisible snow he listened to the faint push of his soft shoes through autumn leaves with satisfaction and whistled a cold, quiet whistle between his teeth, occasionally picking up a leaf as he passed, examining its skeletal pattern in the infrequent lamplights as he went on, smelling its rusty smell. Hello in there, he whispered to every house on every side as he moved. What's up tonight on Channel 4, Channel 7, Channel 9? Where are the cowboys rushing? And do I see the United States Cavalry over the next hill to the rescue? The street was silent and long and empty, with only his, his shadow moving like the shadow of a hawk in mid-country. If he closed his eyes and stood very still, frozen, he could imagine himself upon the center of a plain, a wintry, windless Arizona desert, with no house in a thousand miles, and only dry riverbeds. The streets for company. What is it now? He asked the houses, noticing his, rich, his wristwatch. 8.30 p.m., time for a dozen assorted murders, a quiz, a review, a comedian falling off stage. Was that a murmur of laughter from within a, within a moon-white house? He hesitated, but went on. And when nothing more happened, he stumbled over a particularly uneven section of sidewalk. The cement was vanishing under flowers and grass. In ten years of walking by night or day for thousands of miles, he had never met another person walking. Not once in all that time. He came to a cloverleaf intersection, which stood silent, where two main highways crossed the town. During the day, it was, the thun it was a thunderous surge of cars. The gas stations opened, a great insect rustling and a ceaselessly jockeying for position as the scarab beetles, a faint incense puttering from their exhaust, skimmed homeward to the far directions. But now these days, too, were like streams in a dry season, all stone and bed moon radiance. He turned back on a side street, circling around toward his home. He was within a block of his destination when the lone car turned a corner quite suddenly and flashed a fierce white cone of light upon him. He stood entranced, not unlike a night moth, stunned by the illumination, and then drawn toward it. A metallic voice called to him. Stand still. Stay where you are. Don't move. He halted. Put up your hands. The police, of course. But what a rare, incredible thing in a city of three million. There was only one police car left. Wasn't that correct? Ever since a year ago, 2052, the election year, the force had been cut down from three cars to one. Crime was ebbing and there was no need now for the police, save for this one lone car wandering and wandering the empty streets. Your name, said the police car. Almost got attacked by B. Your name, said the police car in a metallic whisper. He couldn't see the men in it, in it for the bright light in his eyes. Leonard Mead, he said. Speak up. Leonard Mead. Business or profession? I guess you'd call me a writer. No profession, said the police car as if, talking to himself. The light held him fixed, like a museum specimen. Needle thrust through chest. You might say that, said Mr. Mead. He hadn't written in years. Magazines and books didn't sell anymore. Everything went on in the tomb-like houses at night now. He thought continuing his fancy, the tombs, hill lit by television light, 
where the people sat like the dead, the gray of multicolored lights, touching their faces, but never really touching them. No professions to the phonograph's voice hissing. What are you doing out? Walking, said Leonard Mead. Walking? Just walking, he said simply, but his face felt cold. Walking, just walking? Walking? Yes, sir. Walking where? For what? Walking for air. Walking to see. Your address? Live in South St. James Street. And there is air in your house? You have an air conditioner, Mr. Mead? Yes. And you have a viewing screen in your house to see with? No. No, there was a crackling, quiet that in itself was an accusation. Are you married, Mr. Mead? No. Not married, said the police voice behind the fiery beam. The moon was high and clear among the stars, and the houses were gray and silent. Nobody wanted me, said Leonard Mead with a smile. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. Leonard Mead just waited in the cold night. Just walking, Mr. Mead. Yes, but you haven't explained for what purpose. I explained for air and to see and just to walk. Have you done this often? Every night for years, the police car sat in the center of the street with its radio throat faintly humming. Well, Mr. Mead, it said. Is that all? he asked politely. Yes, said the voice. Here, there was a sigh. A pop. The back door of the police car sprang wide. Get in. Wait a minute, I haven't done anything. Get in. I protest. Mr. Mead. He walked like a man suddenly drunk. As he passed the front window of the car, he looked in. As he had expected, there was no one in the front seat. No one in the car at all. Get in. He put his hand to the door and peered into the back seat, which was a little cell. A little black jail with bars. It smelled of riveted steel. It smelled of harsh antiseptic. It smelled too clean and hard and metallic. There was nothing soft there. Now if you had a wife to give you an alibi, said the iron voice. But, where are you taking me? The car hesitated, or rather gave a faint whirring click. As if information somewhere was dropping card by punch-slotted card under electronic eyes to the Psychiatric Center for Research on Regressive Tendencies. He got in. The door shut with a soft thud. The police car rolled through the night avenues, flashing its dim lights ahead. They passed one house on one street. A moment later, one house, an entire city of houses that were all dark. But this one particular house had all of its electric lights brightly lit. Every window allowed yellow illumination, square and warm in the cool darkness. That's my house, said Leonard Reed. No one answered him. The car moved down the empty riverbed, streets and off away, leaving the empty streets with the empty sidewalks, no sound and no motion at all. The rest of the chill November night. It was quite by accident I discovered this incredible invasion of Earth by life forms from another planet. As yet, I haven't done anything about it. I can't think of anything to do. I wrote to the government and they sent back a pamphlet on the repair and maintenance of frame houses. Anyhow, the whole thing is known. I'm not the first to discover it. Maybe it's even under control. I was sitting in my easy chair, idly turning the pages of a paperback book someone had left on the bus, when I came across the reference that first put me on the trail. For a moment I didn't respond. It took some time for the full import to sink in. After I'd comprehended, it seemed odd I hadn't noticed it right away. The reference was clearly to a non-human species of incredible properties, not indigenous to Earth, a species I hastened to point out customarily masquerading as ordinary human beings. Their disguise, however, became transparent in the face of the following observations by the author. It was at once obvious the author knew everything, knew everything and was taking it in his stride. The line, and I tremble remembering it even now, read, his eyes slowly roved about the room. Vague chills assailed me, and I tried to picture the eyes. Did they roll like dimes? The passage indicated not. 
They seemed to move through the air, not over the surface, rather rapidly. Apparently no one in the story was surprised. That's what tipped me off. No sign of amazement at such an outrageous thing. Later the matter was amplified. His eyes moved from person to person. There it was in a nutshell. The eyes had clearly come apart from the rest of him and were on their own. My heart pounded and my breath choked in my windpipe. I had stumbled on an accidental mention of a totally unfamiliar race, obviously non-terrestrial, yet to the characters in the book it was perfectly natural, which suggested the belonging to the same species. And the author? A slow suspicion burned in my mind. The author was taking it rather too easily in his stride. Evidently, he felt this was quite a usual thing. He made absolutely no attempt to conceal his knowledge. The story continued. Presently, his eyes fastened on Julia. Julia, being a lady, had at least the breeding to feel indignant. She is described as blushing and knitting her brows angrily. At this I sighed with relief. They weren't all non-terrestrials, the narrative continues. Slowly, calmly, his eyes examined every inch of her. Great Scott, but here the girl turned and stomped off and the matter ended. I lay back in my chair, gasping with horror. My wife and family regarded me in wonder. What's wrong, dear? my wife asked. I couldn't tell her. Knowledge like this was too much for the ordinary run-of-the-mill person. I had to keep it to myself. Nothing, I gasped. I leaped up, snatched the book, and hurried out the room. In the garage, I continued reading. There was more, trembling. I read the next revealing passage. He put his arm around Julia. Presently, she asked him if he would remove his arm. He immediately did so with a smile. It's not said what was done with the arm after the fellow had removed it. Maybe it was left standing upright in the corner. Maybe it was thrown away. I don't care. In any case, the full meaning was there, staring me right in the face. Here was a race of creatures capable of removing portions of their anatomy at will. Eyes, arms, and maybe more. Without batting an eyelash, my knowledge of biology came in handy. At this point, obviously they were simple beings, unicellular, some sort of primitive single-celled things, beings no more developed than starfish. Starfish can do the same thing, you know. I read on and came to the incredible revelation, tossed off coolly by the author without the faintest tremor. Outside the movie theater, we split up. Part of us went inside, part over to the cafe for dinner. Binary fission, obviously. Splitting in half and forming two entities. Probably each lower half went to the cafe, it being farther, and the upper halves to the movies. I read on, hands shaking. I'd really stumbled onto something here. My mind reeled as I made out the passage. I'm afraid there's no doubt about it. Poor Bibney had lost his head again, which was followed by, and Bob says he has utterly no guts, yet Bibney got around as well as the next person. The next person, however, was just as strange. He was soon described as totally lacking in brains. There was no doubt of the thing in the next passage. Julia, whom I had thought to be the one normal person, reveals herself as also being an alien life form similar to the rest. Quite deliberately, Julia had given her heart to the young man. It didn't relate what the final disposition of the organ was, but I didn't really care. It was evident Julia had gone right on living in her usual manner, like all the others in the book, without heart, arms, eyes, brains, viscera, dividing up in two people when the occasion demanded without a qualm. Thereupon she gave him her hand. I sickened. The rascal now had her hand as well as her heart. I shuddered to think what he's done with him. By this time, he took her arm, not content to wait, he had to start dismantling her on his own. Flushing crimson, I slammed the book shut and leaped to my feet. 
but not in time to escape one last reference to those carefree bits of anatomy whose travel had originally thrown me on the track. Her eyes followed him all the way down the road and across the meadow. I rushed from the garage back inside the warm house, as if the accursed things were following me. My wife and children were playing Monopoly in the kitchen. I joined them and played with frantic fervor, brow feverish, teeth chattering. I had had enough of the thing. I want to hear no more about it. Let them come on, let them invade Earth. I don't want to get mixed up in it. I have absolutely no stomach for it.